Well, good morning. It is a pleasure to actually be here with y'all. Fearful, but still, um, the Lord is gracious and given us weak men's strength in a time of need. So uh, I can definitely attest to that. So as many of you, um, let us seek the Lord in prayer that he would bless our uh, worship service this morning. Heavenly Father, Lord, Lord, we plead with you, Lord, that you, the Almighty, our triune God, will be amongst us this morning. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Father, your word says where two or more are gathered, you are there in the midst, Lord. Your word says that you walk amongst your churches, Lord, in the book of Revelations, Lord. And so, Father, knowing this truth, Lord, we have confidence, Lord, that you would help us, Lord, that you love us, Father. And, Lord, we pray that your spirit would come and sanctify and instruct and lead this sweet hour of worship, Lord, as a sweet aroma to the throne of grace, that our listening and hearing, Lord, and the preaching of your word, Lord, would all be in accordance with your will, Lord, that is revealed in Scripture. So, Father, we pray that you would bless, bless even now, Lord, not for my sake, but for the good of your congregation here, Lord. And above all, Lord, for your name's sake and for your glory. Father, we pray these things in Jesus Christ's most precious name. Amen. Amen. If you would please turn your Bibles to the book of Exodus, chapter 34. Exodus 34, as our brother read. Exodus 34. I'll be picking up in verses 6 and 7. I entitled this message, The Grace and Justice of God. Exodus 34, verse 6. The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. You know, this is my first time here, and um, you know, I know I would assume obviously we get. It would take time for you all to know me, get to know me, and likewise for me to get to know a lot of you. You know, and when it comes, that's how it is in life. When it comes to being acquainted with anyone, we can often just ask others like, hey, what's up with that guy with the beard? How is he? Is he all right? Right? And likewise, I can, hey, how's this gentleman? Or, or whatever, how's this family? Now, that's one way. Or the other way is you actually come to get to know that individual through fellowship, right? Through fellowship. That's how we actually get to know each other in the, con in the congregation, the churches of Christ. We get to fellowship and know each other. Now, when it comes, what comes into our minds now of what we know or think about God is the most important thing that we cannot afford to get wrong. You see, we can 
maybe misunderstand each other's character or whatever, right? I mean, we're, we're human. We're sinners, right? And we can have one thought of someone, and you could be totally wrong. That's fine. But when it comes to the nature of God, that's one thing we cannot afford to get wrong. It was A.W. Tozer who said, the history of mankind will probably show that no people have ever risen above its religion and no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. For this reason, the greatest question before the church is always God himself. It was A.W. Pink who wrote, a spiritual and saving knowledge of God is the greatest need of every human creature. Now, our passage for this morning is one of the most important texts of all of Scripture. Because in this passage, passage of Scripture is the only place in which God himself describes himself. It is God who describes himself. You see, most people have speculated about who God is, but here in our text, God himself tells us who he is. Therefore, those of us who really want to know God in truth are to pay attention to this text, meditate upon this text. Now, what I find fascinating about Exodus 34 what I find fascinating about our text is not only the contents which we will go through, but also its timing. When this revelation of God came, here God's self-revelation to Moses is set out in the context of Israel's lowest points in history. A.W. Pink noted again that the particular character in which the Lord has, was about to reveal himself to Moses is best perceived by noting the place and circumstances of our text. See, these words that are recorded in Exodus 34 come shortly after one of Israel's greatest sins in which they created a golden calf and offered worship to it when God helped them, God saved them from Egypt, He fed them, and yet they forgot. And now they're offering worship to a golden calf. Now, it was upon this horrid sight that Moses breaks the stone tablets of the law and goes back up to the mountain. And it was there upon that mountain that the attributes of God were revealed. Let's take note of the first attributes that the Lord speaks to Moses. God begins his self-revelation to Moses in the words, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious. You know, as I was looking over this text again this morning, one of the things that stood out to me as I was going over is that after seeing what Israel did, and now God's speaking to this certain situation, this particular circumstance, the first words out of God's mouth is, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious. You see, because looking at what Israel just did, I can understand if God was about to say, you know what, I'm done with them. I'm going to just destroy the whole people of Israel. I am, I've had it with them. 
But the first words out of God's mouth is, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious. You see, the first attribute that God proclaims to Moses is that he is compassionate. Or more literally, the compassionate one. Now the word compassionate basically means to be merciful or affectionate. And throughout the Bible, it carries a picture of one having a deep sympathy, sorrow or pity for another. This is the type of compassion one would have, for example, on the homeless, right? Or the elderly. You know, what, th- those are, th- that's the idea that this word obviously carries, and we can understand that. Now, with this word in schooling, I, I'm, I'm enrolled in Reformed Baptist Seminary. And, you know, I'm going through my studies. And one of the courses I had to take in Hebrew was to do a word study on a particular Hebrew word. Just pick one. And I chose this word, compassion, long before I even prepared for this message. And the word for compassion in Hebrew is rahem. And it is derived from a root word which basically refers to, get this, the womb of a woman where a child is conceived. And I was, once I was doing my research and I was trying to understand the connection between the meanings of a womb and compassion, I found that many scholars and commentators pointed out to the picture of the tender care and compassion that a baby receives in its mother's womb. I mean, God saw fit that the best place for a child to be born was in its womb of its mother. I mean, that's the type of perspective that Planned Parenthood needs to understand. Now, this is why the psalmist nicely connects this aspect of mother and father's compassion towards their children in Psalm 103. As a father has compassion on his child, So does the Lord have compassion on those who fear him? In any case, if you you look at all the portions of Scripture, there's a connection here. Even for us to understand here, even as fallen creatures, we can understand and express compassion. But we also as fallen creatures can fall far short of its true depths. You see, our compassion compared to God's compassion There's no competition. None. You see, for Isaiah 49, verses 15 and 16 says, Can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, but I will not forget you. Behold, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. God's compassion is deep. It is vast. It is uncomprehensible at times. You see, the picture God is putting before us, church, as the tender compassion and love a mother and father has for their own children, so much more does the God and Father of us have deeper for us. You see, God's compassion is, is undes- it's undescribable. It's deeper than we can even explain. We can lose words in trying to express God's compassion. Now the next attribute that God 
describes himself is he's gracious. The next attribute of God in our text says he is gracious. And our compassionate God is also gracious. Now the root word here for um, gracious literally means to be bend or inclined. Right? It means to be bend or inclined to help someone in need. To grant mercy or favor. It often speaks of one who bestows his benefits out of mere favor. And get this, without obligation. There's nothing that is required of an individual who is receiving grace. It is granting favor to one who has no real claim for grace's treatment. Now, and you know, there's a few cases, we can understand this, but there's a few cases in Scripture that note this. For example, um, the grace that Potiphar had towards Joseph in Genesis 39, where it says in which Joseph found favor in Potiphar's sight in which he was made overseer of his house. Other cases, for example, is when the favor that Boaz had towards Ruth. You see, all these are cases or acts of mercy or acts of unmerited favor to individuals. Now, the difference is in our text is that in Exodus 34, verse 6, the word for gracious is the adjective form of the word is used here. And as many of you know, an adjective is a word used to describe a person, place, or thing. This adjective form of the word gracious occurs 13 times in Scripture. And all 13 times, the person who is being described as having a gracious character is God. Only God. You see, Joseph received a great favor, an act of grace from Potiphar. Boaz performed a gracious act or act of favor towards Ruth, but neither Potiphar or Boaz cannot be attributed with having a gracious character. Only God can. The word gracious is used more in reference to God than anyone else in the Bible. Literally, the Lord God is the gracious one. And he is inclined toward being gracious towards the subjects he chooses. The only person in the whole world that we can ever come to know and come across as being gracious is none other than God himself. See, we can lose grace for one another. Men lose his grace for one another. But God never loses his gracious character towards you. The grace of God is displayed throughout the Bible from Genesis to Revelation and is the foundational basis for his goodness and kindness toward his people. Now God follows up these attributes by saying he is also long-suffering. Look in your Bibles. We come to God's patience. God is long-suffering. The God of the Bible is long-suffering or slow to anger. Now, you and I both know that because of human sin, God has every right to be angry. He has every right. It is our sin that dishonors and displeases him. And therefore, God is well within his rights to be angry towards humanity. Yet, while God may be rightfully angry over our sin and disobedience, he is not quick to become angry towards his people because he is long-suffering. He's slow to anger. Now, the phrase long-suffering in Hebrew literally means uh, says long to the nose or a long nose. 
Now, I know, obviously, that God's not telling Moses that he has a long nose. But there is a Hebrew understanding behind this phrase. You see, to the Hebrews, the nose was associated with anger. It was associated with anger. Because when a person is angry, he or she, she uh, his or her nose may involuntarily give them away. You know, when you were a parent or you were a kid, and you heard your father breathing hard or your mother breathing hard, in my household it was that, and my mom's eyebrows, it would point up, and I knew that I was in trouble. I knew it. But that was her way of saying, get your act right, you know, you, you're about to get disciplined. But I knew that was my mom's way of warning me. You see, when it comes to God, our text is stating that it takes God a long time before he gets to that point. That he is long-suffering. Now the patience or long-suffering of God is experienced by all men. Both righteous and wicked. You see, John Gill writes, uh, God is patient both towards wicked men who are vessels of wrath by whom his patience is abused and despised. And we can see that in our own land, right? They abuse the grace of God. But also he is patient toward his elect on whom he waits to be gracious, not willing that any of them should perish, but that all would be brought to repentance. You see, God is a God who is in no hurry to judge sinners. He often delays the execution of his justice because of his patience. And because of God's extraordinary patience, our text says that he is also, he also abounds in goodness and in truth. See, look in your Bibles, that the Lord abounds in goodness and truth. The text can be translated more literally that he is great in acts of loving kindness and great in faithfulness. This phrase in Hebrew communicates the concept of faithful loving kindness. Faithful loving kindness. Stated simply, the term conveys the idea that God can be trusted to uphold his love and kindness faithfully towards his people. That his loving kindness can be uphold faithfully towards us. God's love and kindness to us is not faithless. It's faithful. It is faithful. I mean, to understand this, we just need to think of Israel now. I can't tell you how many times when me and my family, we, we do our family worship, we read through the Bible, right? And in the Old Testament, how many times do we read of Israel's unfaithfulness towards God? I mean, it's like, it's like, are you kidding me again and again, right? I mean, we, I mean, but we have to realize maybe we would be no better, right? But how many times we read about it, and do we, but yet, despite all that, how many more times do we read of God's faithful loving kindness to Israel? All the time. We read this multiple times throughout the Old Testament. I mean, if you really want to bring it home, all you have to do is ask yourself, how many times can you recall your own unfaithfulness? I include myself into that question. To God. And yet, how many more times have you experienced God's faithful loving kindness toward you? So many times in my own life, dealing with my own sin, I sit there and say, oh, I'm undone. I'm undone. Like, I can't see how the Lord's going to help me through this. 
And yet the Lord comes and he provides a way of escaping. He provides repentance and you're within his mercy and grace. I tell you, if all of you were to try to recount all those times that the Lord was faithful to you, despite your faithlessness, it'd be too many to count. You couldn't keep track of it. I mean, the Lord is faithful in loving kindness. Along with his faithful loving kindness, furthermore, our God states that he is one, look in your Bibles, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Now, this we see the depths of God's forgiveness now, here. See, the word forgive signifies a lifting up or taking away or relieving one of a burden. The verb is used figuratively here and elsewhere of God taking away a heavy burden, which in our text indicates the heavy burden of sin. Now, just briefly touching on these words that are in our text, iniquity, transgression, and sin. Now, iniquity is a word that speaks of man's inward corruption or that inward depravity. It's that inward root that is bent towards sinning. It speaks of our natural tendency to sin. Now, the word transgression literally means the overstepping of boundaries or basically the commandments of God. It often use, it's often used of willful disobedience. And sin speaks of missing the mark or our failure to live up to the standards of God. Now, the reason for the three uses of the, the word iniquity, transgression, and sin in our text, why is that? Well, I don't think God's being redundant here, but I believe it is to represent the totality of any and every sin that man may commit. God uses these terms not to be redundant, but to sum up all of the sins and evils that men are capable of. See, the main point of our text is that he is a God who forgives all manner of sin. I mean, that's comforting for the worst sinner. That he is a God who forgives all manner of sin. John Calvin writes here that thus the greatness of God's clemency is set forth as he not only pardons light offenses, but the very grossest of sins. And again, he remits not only sin in one case, but also to sinners by whom he has been a, a hundred times offended. Hence, therefore, appears the extent of his goodness, since he blots out an infinite mass of iniquities. I mean... It's one thing for, you know, God to forgive you one or two sins, or maybe a hundred. But you and I both know we're far guilty of a hundred. It is more comforting to know that our God is a God who forgives all manner of sin. Dear ones, for anyone who may need to be reminded, it, is, it does not matter how scandalous your sin may be. God is willing to pardon each and every one of them. In Christ, no questions asked. Now, just think how surprising or encouraging these words were to the people of Israel or Moses in hearing in Exodus 30, what they're hearing in Exodus 34, especially after their great transgression in the wilderness. I mean, to hear that the Lord Yahweh 
is one who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin? How much more should these words be a blessing to us in light of knowing the redemption that we have in Jesus Christ? These words should have a deeper root within our hearts because we can see why we could be forgiven. It's because of what Christ did on the cross. I mean, despite our constant failure to live up to God's standards, we have a Savior who can forgive every manner of iniquity, transgression, and sin. But God is not done speaking. See, this is all nice, right? But God's not done speaking. He goes on to express Moses the severity of his justice and righteousness also. He says, yet... He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Now, our brother mentioned earlier, you think Moses was a little scared in, in hearing these words? I mean, if you really think about it, I think most men would be terrified. They would forget everything that was just said before, and they would hear those words, and most men will shudder. Well, why? Well, let us consider it. It may come as a surprise to us that after so much has been said about God's compassion, grace, and forgiving character, to read the words, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. See, our text now speaks of the righteousness of God. This attribute features the other side of God's forgiveness and grace. Although he delights in forgiveness, his grace does not void or rule out his justice. And why? And why is that? Why? Well, it's because God is holy. He is righteous. And therefore, because He is holy and righteous, He cannot overlook justice. The Lord God cannot deny Himself. He can't. Now, in our text, the Lord God is emphatic now about this character of His justice, His righteousness. How so? Well, the word unpunished. Now, you've seen your Bibles? The word unpunished? In Hebrew, that word in the Hebrew text is repeated twice for emphasis. Just like, you know, when the Lord really wanted to emphasize something to the people he was ministering to when he, he was on earth, he said, truly, truly, I say to you. He would repeat himself. Truly, truly, I say to you. Now, that's one point of emphasis. The other point of emphasis is in, the, in our text is the use of the strong adversative in the word, by no means. Now, what do you mean by that? By no means. Well, there's two ways you could say no. And I think a lot of us can understand this. You could tell your children, don't touch that stove because it's hot. Right? And then the other way you can express no is that you shall never, ever do this. Don't you ever do that. Now, for example, a child, tell them, don't touch that stove. That doesn't mean they should never, ever touch the stove. Obviously, when they get older and grow, they can touch the stove as they gain maturity and know how to use it, right? That's a specific prohibition. But in Hebrew, there's two ways. The second way is a permanent or an absolute command. And for example, in our text, the permanent or absolute command is used, the word no. And this is the word no that is used, for example, before the Ten Commandments. You know, it says, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit adultery, 
Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Now, the Lord's not saying, you know, during this specific time, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Or, you know, just this specific time, thou shalt not kill. No, the strong adversity for no is used before the Ten Commandments, which it basically literally means, thou shalt never, ever commit adultery. Thou shalt never, ever put any other gods before me. Is a permanent command. And this is the same word that is used in our text. And more literally, you know what it's saying? By no means shall the guilty go unpunished. Never ever shall the guilty go unpunished. See, when you read it, naturally you're like, but when you actually look at it from this point of view, this is a strong, strong way of the Lord expressing his righteousness. By no means clear the guilty. But God is saying that he will never, ever, under any circumstances, allow the guilty to go unpunished. See, God is not like our crooked judges or our corrupt politicians who can be bribed into overlooking justice or doing what's right. See, God is a God of justice, and he will by no means allow the guilty to go free from his justice. Now, if you think about it, when it comes now to who we are, who God is, it somewhat poses a problem. You see, for the Bible clearly says that there is none righteous, no, not one. There are none who are innocent, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We basically all have broken God's law. Now, can you imagine, though, what was going through Moses' head when he heard these words? that God will by no means clear the guilty. I mean, Moses was a man who was used by God. He's hearing all these great attributes of God. And then the, the Lord throws in there, but yet I will by no means clear the guilty. And you have to remember, Moses was a man of anger. He was also a man who was guilty of murder. And hearing these words, I'm... I can almost assure you he was terrified. For example, I, I wonder why in, in Exodus 34, verse 8, Moses made haste to bow low toward the earth in worship. I think he had to put his hands over his mouth and put his hand down. That this God, this Almighty, this Yahweh is righteous and he is just. Now that was, in our text, I mentioned in the beginning that the importance of our text is because it's the only place that God has described himself his own attributes, right? But there's an also, another reason why this text is so important, and it's because it's usage throughout the whole Bible. You know, the other way to determine the importance of a specific text in the Bible is its usage. You see, and what I found is that the roots of Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7 are found throughout the Old Testament scriptures. I mean, it's everywhere. Many of the prayers of the prophets of the Old Testament appeal to the attributes of God that are proclaimed here in Exodus 34. I mean, for example, there's so many. I had to cut out three pages of this before because I was listing all the references. But, for example, the prophet Daniel, during the exile, prays for the people of Israel in Daniel 9. And he says, O Lord, let now your anger and your wrath turn away from your city Jerusalem, your holy mountain, for we are not presenting our supplications before you on account of any merits of our own, but on account of your great compassion. 
You're like, oh, okay, he mentioned compassion. Okay, well, Nehemiah. Nehemiah 9 states, But you, O Lord, are a God of forgiveness who is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. For you are a gracious and compassionate God. For this also remember me, O Lord, and have compassion on me according to the greatness of your loving kindness. And also one of my favorite psalms, probably many of you, Psalm 51. With King David, Psalm 51, verses 1 and 2, he says, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion. Blot out my transgression. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. Why? For you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. I mean, to those who have been paying attention, does all this, does any of this sound familiar to you? These are the echoes of Exodus 34, constantly being pleaded for by God's people throughout the Old Testament. All the Old Testament saints were pleading for the compassion and grace of God in Exodus 34, verse 6. And why? Because of what they knew about the justice of God in Exodus 34, verse 7. They may have wondered, how can God in righteousness be gracious during that time? How can he? Well, it was through various types and shadows in the Old Testament. God was revealing how in righteousness he could also be gracious. And it was through the prophet Isaiah that this was abundantly made clear. The prophet Isaiah speaks of a suffering servant who will reconcile both the grace and righteousness of God. You see, when Isaiah speaks of this suffering servant, he says in Isaiah 53, Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. See, Isaiah spoke of none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, as many of you know. See, God in Jesus Christ shows us how he will deal with his grace and his righteousness. How his righteousness and grace can be reconciled with no contradictions. See, and Paul knows this, and he picks up on it in Romans chapter 3 and says, Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith, this was to demonstrate his righteousness, because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, and for what reason, Paul? So that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. See, God's grace and righteousness were vindicated in the cross of Christ. God did not look like a hypocrite. He did not contradict himself when he said that I am gracious, but I am also just. And it was vindicated at the cross of Christ. And Paul further writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. Beloved, 
This is the great exchange. This is the great exchange. The just dying for the unjust. Why? So that the unjust can be considered just. You see, at the cross, both justice and grace are at perfect union. In the New Testament, wrath and grace, wrath and mercy meet at the cross. It is at the cross in the death of Jesus Christ where wrath was completely satisfied and grace can now flow like a river. Therefore, because of the death of Christ and his substitutionary atonement that Christ has shed on our behalf, upon the elect, we can now in perfect justice and in peace be recipients of God's great compassion. You see, without Christ, we cannot trust these words in Exodus 34. Without Christ, God's compassion, loving kindness, and faithfulness, it don't mean nothing to us. Unless we have Christ. You see, because without Christ, we have nothing more but a fearful expectation of judgment. But because of Christ, beloved, we don't have that. We have a hope in Christ. An eternal hope in Christ. But because of Jesus Christ, we can trust in the compassion and grace of God. Because of Jesus Christ, we can rely on His faithful, loving kindness and patience. And above all, because of Jesus Christ, we can trust that the justice of God has been paid in full on our behalf. Like our brother says, you're clean before God. You rest, you close your eyes, and you don't wake him up the next day. I mean, in Christ, you have eternal life. You will be with him. That's the true life of peace, of knowing God, knowing his son's death on your behalf. That's true peace. Even if this country just goes to a mess, we have peace in God. We have peace in Christ. Christian, if you were to truly ponder such gracious truths, how can you not love Christ? How can you not love our Savior who bore the wrath of God for you so that you would not have to endure it, but to know the compassion and grace and loving kindness of God? Now, what are some applications we can get from our text? Well, the first one is, Because we are people who have been forgiven much, therefore we are to love much, as Luke chapter 7 says. You see, our Lord Jesus Christ, when asked what was the greatest commandment, stated, first and foremost, we are to love the Lord God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Why? Because of all that he has done for us. God in Jesus Christ was, has demonstrated a love that was not only predestined for you, beloved, but it was a love that he said that he has loved you with everlasting love. And this also connects to our second application, which we are to love one another now. Right? Not only we are to love the Lord God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, but we are to love one another. See, we are to love one another. Jesus said in John 13, By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Christ said in John 15, This is my commandment to you, that you love one another 
Paul says in Romans 12.10, to be devoted to one another in brotherly love. We are to be a people of love. Love for God and love for one another. Because why? We have been, give, we have been forgiven much. Thirdly and lastly, let us learn from our text how we are to present the gospel to those around us. And what I mean is that we are not to be all doom and gloom, fire and brimstone, as if the Bible says nothing about the grace of God. And also we are not to be all happy, clappy about the grace of God, as if the Bible says nothing about the wrath of God. We are to present the legitimate basis for God's wrath and man's condemnation and for the necessity of Christ's death on the cross in order to experience the grace of God. You see, when I can't tell you how many times I was in a church as a kid and I would always hear, oh, God has a perfect plan for your life. He loves you. He don't want you sick. He, want, he doesn't want you poor. All this garbage. But yet, none of that brought me to repentance at all. I mean, it wasn't until I heard Paul Washer preach and I heard about I mean, he'll tell you about the wrath of God really quick, that I was actually running towards God for mercy and grace. See, we have to understand the nature of God in its fullness. God is gracious, but he's also just. We are to present the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. It is only the truth that will set sinners free. It is not until we truly see who we are and what we tr truly just deserve before we can really see and cherish who Christ is and what he has done on our behalves. See, the cross doesn't mean anything to you unless you understand your part in it, your sin, your condemnations, your offense to God, and your just condemnation. And when you understand that, you understand what Christ did on the cross, then you can appreciate and cherish what he did. You can fully understand what he did. Now, to those who may not know the Lord outside of the camp, well, what, can I, what applications are for you? Well, remember, one thing you have to remember is that God is still just. He's still just. And he will by no means clear the guilty. See, you need to get right with God and you need to do it now. As one man I remember puts it, you need to settle out of court with him now. For tomorrow is not promised to you. The Bible states that God has your days numbered and you do not know when that last day will come. Because there is a day by which God will finally demonstrate his righteousness. There is a day. As Hebrews chapter 9 verse 27 states, it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this, the judgment. Acts 17 30, verse 31 says, For God has fixed a day in which he would judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who have not repented of their sin and embraced the Son of God by faith will by no means escape this awful day of judgment. But God is still gracious. He is still gracious. As we often say, today is the day of salvation. You see, though God will by no means clear the guilty, Yet those who come to his son for forgiveness will by no means be cast out. On that final day, your sinful past will by no means be thrown in your face if you come to Christ. 
And those who cast themselves at the foot of Christ, at the feet of Christ, will by no means be put to shame on that final day. You would hear the most blessed words that any Christian wants to hear. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Come be blessed. I tell you, though God will by no means clear the guilty, he'll by no means cast you out if you come to his son by faith. So, it is only through Jesus Christ will you have the fullness of God's compassion and grace if you know him. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Let us pray.